Well, in the classic American novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, is my read To Kill a Mockingbird? Gosh, I hope I, thank you. Man, that was great. I was about to be severely depressed. Uh, one of my favorite uh, novels, To Kill a Mockingbird, one of a lot of people's favorite novels, one of the, the top American um, uh, novels, uh, centers around a family. If you're unfamiliar with the book, it center, centers around a family in the, the southern United States in the 1930s. It's a story of, of racism, hatred, pride, discrimination on the part of some characters, and on the part of other characters, love and compassion and tenderness and humility. Uh, the larger narrative of the story has to do with a, a lawyer named Atticus Finch, who's defending a man named Tom Robinson for a crime he didn't commit. What's even clearer in the book than Tom Robinson's innocence is that Tom Robinson, a black man, will most certainly be found guilty by an all-white jury in the 1930s American South. Atticus knows that this is the likely outcome going in, but he takes the job anyway because it's the right thing to do. And you're watching him grapple with that throughout the entire narrative and uh, throughout the, the, the entire, entire story. The, the story itself is told by Atticus's daughter, Scout. Scout is uh, telling the, the, the story, and through her eyes, you see Atticus and his family take all kinds of uh, abuse from the entire town for his defense of this black man. Atticus is called horrible names. The kids are called horrible names. He's spat upon. He narrowly escapes death one night, uh, being attacked, probably killed by a, a, a mob of angry citizens who were coming for him. One of the most perverse and angry critics of Atticus Finch, Finch is, is one of their neighbors, a lady named Mrs. DuBose. She's old and foul-mouthed and racist and loud. You know uh, her, her uh, actions with the family because she lives right down the road, and every day as Atticus is on his way home from the courthouse, the kids, uh, Scout and her brother Jim, uh, run down to the end of the block to meet Atticus as he's coming home and then walk with him the rest of the way back to the house, passing by the house of Mrs. DuBose on a daily basis. This leads, one of these interactions leads to one of my favorite lines in the book. Jim was furious at something Mrs. DuBose had just said to them as they walked by, some nasty things that she had hurled down from her front porch. Listen to Scout tell the story. Easy does it, son, Atticus would say. You just hold your head high and be a gentleman. Whatever she says to you, it's your job to not let her make you mad. When the three of us came to her, to her house, Atticus would sweep off his hat and wave gallantly to her and say, good evening, Mrs. DeBose. You look like a picture this evening. I never heard Atticus say like a picture of what? <laughs> he, he would tell her the courthouse news, and he would say that he hoped with all of his heart that she'd have a good day tomorrow. He would return his hat to his head. He'd swing me up to his shoulders in her very presence, and we would go home in the twilight. It was times like these when I thought that my father, who didn't have a gun and who had never been to any wars, was the bravest man who ever lived. Isn't that a great line? The bravest man who ever lived. 
Church, we need such bravery, don't we? There's certainly a bravery that attends to those who fight in our wars, but there's another kind of bravery that we all need in our lives, the bravery to endure insults and evil comments, the, the, the bravery to keep our heads held high and behave Christianly even when in the midst of an, an intense pressure or persecution or trials and, and struggles in this life. Well, how do we do that? We see pictures of it, like what we see in Atticus Finch, and we all admire it. We say, yes, there's something there. That's right. That's how we are to behave. But what does it look like for us to do that well, and how do we do that well? Well, our text this morning in Acts chapter 25, I think we're going to see a picture of this, of of Paul in the midst of such pressures, of false accusations, of death threats, of imprisonment, and so on. And we get to watch him walk through that in a way that I think would be commendable to Christ for how we should walk through such pressures in our lives. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 25. You, you may note in, uh, in your service guide, it says Acts 23. Uh, that was just a, a typo there. We will be in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12 this morning. And as we're there, I, I, I want us to see that through the, the pressures of life, Keep your eyes on the purposes of God. That's what I want us to walk away with from from this text as we see Paul doing this as well. Through the pressures of life, keep your eyes on the purposes of God. Well, how can we faithfully endure? How can we do that well? Not just to survive in the midst of such pressures, but to thrive in the midst of them. I want to highlight three things in our text this morning. Uh, The first is to rest in God's care. Rest in God's care. Number two, maintain godly conduct. Maintain godly conduct. And number three, focus on God's commission. Focus on God's commission. If you've been with us for a number of weeks here, you you may say, man, that that sounds like some of the other sermons that we've had. Yes. (laughs) From, From chapter 21 through 26, you see Paul arrested and tried and bounced back and forth between different rulers and authorities, and you see him making defenses in, in, in front of them and defending himself, and, and uh, so there's a lot of similar texts, but it's here for a reason. Luke repeats these over and over again, and so we as a church walking through this text will repeat these same themes because they are good for us to continue to chew on and to remember together. Through the pressures of life, keep your eyes on the purposes of God, rest in God's care, maintain godly conduct, and focus on God's commission. Look at the text with me, Acts chapter 25. I'll start reading in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. 
But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, uh, who, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Number one, rest in God's care. I have primarily here the first five verses, Acts 25, verses 1 through 5. And this chapter begins, chapter 25 begins with Festus uh, arriving in the province and, and traveling to Jerusalem. If you'll remember, from the end of chapter 24, there was a guy named Felix who was the governor of Judea. Garrett talked about that in his sermon last week. Felix was the governor of Judea. Uh, in 60 AD, the, the, uh, we, we know uh, uh, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, says that, that Felix um, had a bunch of complaints, local complaints about him in the area. And so Caesar removed Felix, and now you have Festus, who is now the governor of Judea. That happens in 60 AD. And so in chapter 24, verse 27, you, you see that, that succession take place. And Felix uh, had been leaving Paul in prison. So Felix was in charge. He, he leaves Paul in prison for two years. Paul is sitting in prison, and, and the reason is because uh, he was hoping that Paul was going to try to bribe him in some way, and also trying to do a favor to the Jews who were adamantly against the ministry of Paul. Felix leaves Paul to, to kind of sit in this house arrest for two years there in Caesarea. We don't know much about Paul's imprisonment here. We, we know more about other imprisonments that he has and more times in custody uh, than what he has right here in Caesarea. But because we know what his character and what, what his uh, actions were like in these other uh, times, we can assume it was much the same here. We can assume that his time during these two years in which, Festus, uh, in which Felix left him in custody was a time of rich ministry. Right back in uh, Acts chapter 16, Paul was uh, arrested and jailed in Philippi. And the next thing you know, the jailer himself is calling out, how can I be saved? And the jailer becomes a Christian. We know uh, after this, uh, 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 Paul will write to the, the church at, at Philippi that his imprisonment in Rome, he says, has really served to advance the gospel. That he, He's imprisoned and he writes to the, the church in, uh, at Philippi. He says that my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known to the entire imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So you see Paul, wherever he, even when he's in prison during these two years, he surely is having a rich ministry. And we see at the end of chapter 24 as well that, that he had some freedom there, if you remember. That Felix left him in prison for two years, and, but allowed people to come and to minister to him. He had the, the liberty for people to come and to talk to him. And so Paul was certainly carrying on his ministry, which is probably part of why the Jews are still there and the Jews are still angry. They haven't, it's not like Paul is out of sight, out of mind. Oh, good, he's locked up now, and, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. Paul is still ministering. Paul is still preaching the gospel. He's still influencing people. So the Jews are still there wanting to get rid of him. That's the context of what we have going on here as we go from chapter 24 to 25. The Jews are still on the scene, still incensed. Paul's not locked up languishing somewhere. He hasn't been silenced or shut down, which is why Festus's actions here are so key. So in verse 2, if you look there in your text, in verse 2, <clears throat> as Festus takes over for Felix, he has this prisoner under his care that he needs to deal with immediately. 
So he goes to deal with uh, this prisoner, Paul, that he has in custody. The Jews make their charges uh, against him, and then they try to get Paul transferred from Caesarea to Jerusalem so that they could murder him along the way. Now, Festus doesn't know that. He doesn't know about their plot and their ambush and everything that's going on here, but the Jews want to get him transported to Jerusalem in verse 3 so that they could execute him. And that was their plan. We know all the way from back in chapter 23, which was thwarted by Paul's nephew who goes and tells the, the, uh, the, the, the tribune about the plan, and Paul was then. That's why he ends up in, in Caesarea where he is. But if you remember back in that text, there, there were a bunch of men who, who took a vow together. We're not going to eat. We're not going to sleep. We're not going to uh, be deterred from this mission to kill Paul. So there they still are, seeking to put him to death. However, verses 4 and 5, if you look there, Festus says, well, well Paul is being held at Caesarea, so they want him moved to Jerusalem. And Festus just basically says, listen, we've got him locked up in Caesarea. If you guys want to come talk or want to come bring charges, you need to go there and do it. So you can just send a delegation of your leaders to Caesarea and make charges about him. What I want you to see there, church, is, is, is one thing that Luke is highlighting for us in this text is that Festus doesn't even know what is going on, but God uses him to spare Paul's life. You see, that God, God protects Paul through the actions of pagan rulers and systems even. Even when they don't know everything that's happening, he does. He sees all, he directs all, he cares and he is showing that in Paul's life, behind the scenes in, in the text, unbeknownst to Festus, who was making these decisions. So Luke is, is showing us this in, in the, the narrative, and that's something, DRBC, that we likewise need to, need to rest in the care of God. When, when we read stories in the Bible, what we are meant to, to look and have, have lenses for what we can learn about who God is and what his character is like and how does he act toward his children? How does he act in reference to his creation? And here we see God's behind the scenes care for Paul. It would have been tempting, wouldn't it, to have for, for Paul in custody for two years? Not much going on, waiting, waiting. Had God forgotten? Does God know? Does God care? It's easy for us in our seasons of waiting and seasons of pain and seasons of trial to start to ask some of those questions, and, but, but you don't get any sense of that in the text that that was Paul's demeanor. Paul's able to rest in the sovereign care of God, and Luke is bringing that out in the narrative showing that God is in control of all of these things. Luke shows us in the narrative that, yes, God knows, Paul, right where you are. Yes, God cares about where you are, Paul. He sees I just want to say, church, there's, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a skill in recognizing God's care in your life in these ways. It's, it's a learned behavior to be able to spot those things. It's something in which you can grow or be weak in of recognizing that. One thing I already mentioned is to read God's word and look for the ways that God always cares and always sees and always does what is good. And we know by God's revelation to us that he's saying, this is what I'm like, this is what I've been like from the beginning of time, and this is what I will be like for you as well. We know that in our meditations on the gospel that the, 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 the Bible says that God has shown his love for us, he's demonstrated his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. If God can send Christ to reach into your deepest, uh, most, most uh, uh, fundamental foundational issue, which is sin and separation from God, if he sees that and can deal with that, he can surely deal with any other lesser thing in your life. God sees and cares, and, and by reminding ourselves of the gospel, we're reminding ourselves that this is who God is, and this is what God does. 
Perhaps also you could begin a, a practice just practically. There's ways we can grow in this. Uh, a practice that would be helpful perhaps for you is to, is, to, is to write down your prayers. Maybe keep a prayer journal. One of the ways, one of the things that happens is often, very often, we will we'll pray and we'll, we'll ask God for things. And then we, we can kind of go on and forget about what it was that we prayed about. And, and, but having a prayer journal, you can go back and leave a little room in the margin or under uh, each thing that you're praying for where you can come back and write in how God answered those things. Begin to, 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 to have just a physical, tangible evidence of God's uh, love and God's care in your life that you can go back to because we so easily and so quickly forget. This is a biblical thing, which is, uh, if you remember back in, in Joshua chapter 4, as Israel crossed uh, over the Jordan uh, into the promised land, what did they do? They made a big stack of rocks. <laughs> they took these stones and they made these stones in the river. Do you remember why? Because when your kids ask, why is this big pile of rocks there? You will say, let me tell you the story about what God did. Let me tell you the story about how God was faithful and he took us from there to here. It's a biblical concept. You might even do that. Actually, in my family, we have little stones of remembrance where we write different things on these rocks and we keep them in, uh, in your family devotions or maybe at a, 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 each new year or some special time of the year to take those out and just, let the, just pull out the rocks and read them. And, be like, and just tell the story of God's faithfulness in your life. Tell the story about how he, how he uh, 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 saved you in some way, how he healed you of that thing, how he moved you to this place, how he answered that prayer, how he was present in this way or that way. We have each of our kids' birth uh, days on there that we can come and, and they pull out that rock and you see the birthday and be like, let me tell you the story of how you were born. Let me, let me tell you God's faithfulness in that. When we first moved to Memphis, Tennessee, we had somebody, uh, we had a shooting in our front yard on the first day that we arrived. We, there's a rock that just says the shooting. <laughs> so we can tag that out. Let, let me tell you about the shooting when th th there was a drive-by in our front yard. We just tell that story. Let me tell you about how God caused us to move to China and uproot and put our family in those. Let me, let me tell you how God brought us back here to Alexandria. Let's tell the story of God's faithfulness and how we've seen him act in all of these ways. Church, you will forget so will I. So would the Jews. That's why they remind themselves of these things. Rest in God's care. It's a, it's a learned behavior to spot God's faithfulness and to remind ourselves of that. And if you're struggling to see it, perhaps you could even ask close friends around you, hey, I, I feel like my vision is a little cloudy right now because in pain we can kind of have, have clouded vision on this. Could, could you please tell me ways you see God working in my life? Could you please help me see that because I'm having a hard time seeing it for myself right now? Indeed, realize that those friends by your side are actual examples of how God cares for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we, we, if we want God to care for us and we want to see how God cares for us, we have to take him at his word for how he said he's going to do it. Right? 2 Corinthians 1, the Father of all mercies, the God of comfort, comforts us in all of our afflictions and uses those who have been so comforted by him to comfort each other. And so if you're sitting down across the table from another believer saying, I don't I'm struggling to see how God is comforting me in this situation. The person's right in front of you. The fact that you have brothers and sisters and church members and people right beside you is a tangible way that God says, this is how I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to do it through my word. I'm going to do it through my spirit. I'm going to do it in the church with your brothers and sisters being there and encouraging each other. Friends, we have to train our eyes to see God's care for us so that when we're going through times of pressure and times of trial just like Paul is here we can rest we can rest because we remember how faithful God is we remember that God cares we remember that God sees 
and that he does what is good. Well, another thing here in the text, number two, is, is to maintain godly conduct. So we rest in God's care and we maintain godly conduct, which is something we see Paul exemplify here as well. Look at verse six again. After he stayed uh, among them, uh, not more than eight or ten days, this is Festus, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. We'll stop there for a moment. Maintain godly conduct. Here, here's where Festus hears Paul's defense uh, against these Jews who have traveled from Caesarea to make charges they couldn't prove. This is actually the fourth of five defenses that we see Paul mention. So that's why if you're like, sounding familiar, or it, well, it is. Uh, so uh, we, we see him uh, defend himself against the Jews. Uh, we see him defend himself against the Sanhedrin. Uh, we see him in the council. We see him defend himself before Felix. We see him here defend, defend himself before Festus. And then we're going to see it again. Uh, there's another one coming up before King Agrippa. He's going to make another defense. The text here says that the, they, they came and they stood around him. The, the idea there is, is, is kind of a, an intimidating, foreboding, kind of he is surrounded in this context and they are standing around him and it says they are bringing many charges and these charges are serious. It's a tense moment. It's going to be dismissed rather quickly, but, but the, the language in the text is, is meant to bring up that tension and that this is, a, this, is, this is a precarious situation for Paul right now, could kind of go either way, and he's in a dangerous spot. Well, the first thing that we note about con Paul's conduct, not just here, but throughout these narratives, is, is how patient and how calm and how at peace he seems to be, right? Even in the midst of these serious charges, even after being in custody for over two years, how was Paul able to maintain and achieve such a, a demeanor? Well, it's surely governed by, by, by why he was able to, to achieve such a demeanor. So, so how he acts is, is governed really by why he acts in that way. What I mean is this. As Paul saw these Jews who were rejecting Jesus, that, that, that's what's at issue here. Paul, he's made that clear. I'm on trial for the resurrection of Jesus. He said, I'm, I'm here because the resurrection of Jesus. It's over and over again. He, they are against him because of their rejection of Jesus and his proclamation of Jesus. And so as Paul interacts with those Jews who are rejecting Jesus and attacking them, do you know what his prevailing emotion would have been? Sorrow. Sadness. Compassion. We know this. Listen to Romans chapter 9. Paul tells us this. Romans chapter 9. You hear his heart in this. Romans 9, verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That, that's his demeanor. That's his emotion. That's what he feels right here. I have deep sorrow or great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
You see how deeply Paul feels that? You see how deeply compassionate he is for them? Regardless of the, the, the insults they're throwing his way, regardless of, of the, the false accusations they're making him, regardless of, of the way he's being treated by them, he looks at them and he has sorrow and anguish in his eyes. He says, I wish I could be accursed if it meant that they could be saved and see Jesus and follow him. The Jewish rejection of Jesus tore him up inside. So one of the reasons you see Paul acting the way that he does in the midst of these trials is his heart of, of love and compassion towards them. Friends, it, it's easy, it's so easy in our trials and our rejections to become embittered, to become antagonistic, to become combative. But we must fight to see others with the gospel glasses that we see here, with the, the eyes of Jesus. Right, if we can, if we can do that, then the thing that we will see against those who are causing pain in our lives, those who are, who are bringing that pressure in our lives, what we will see then is sheep without a shepherd. That's what Jesus said. He looked out at the crowd, he says, I see them as sheep without a shepherd. We will see with glasses that, whereby we will, be, we will remember that, that everybody loves their friends, but we are to love our enemies and pray for them. We'll see like Jesus who said, hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That heart of Jesus that Jesus has toward all of us of compassion for those who are shepherdless, for those who are enemies that need to know how to be friends of God, for those who, who act and we don't even know what we're doing in our rejection of him and our opposition to him. He says, Father, forgive them. And Paul, by God's grace and by his spirit, is acting in that way. That's why he's able to have this godly conduct that he has. And as such, as I did, the gospel reminds us that we've all also likewise rebelled against Jesus in our own way, have we not? It's not just the Jews that rejected Jesus, but the Gentiles as well. We are all sin, and, 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 or we are rebels in our sin against our good and gracious God, which is exactly why Christ came, to save rebels just like us by taking the penalty that our rebellion deserved and by being killed as a common criminal in our place so that we might have life. And when we remember that, it radically transforms our conduct even in the midst of the most intense pressure and trial and ill treatment. May we likewise maintain godly conduct in the face of pressures and the pains of this life. Well, another way that we see Paul's conduct here is godly conduct in the face of the pressures and, and, and pains is not just in his demeanor, but in the fact that he was above reproach. He was above board. The things of which he were being accused were things for which he had no troubled conscience at all. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 summarizes Paul's defense there. Paul argued in his defense, as we've seen him already argue in chapters before this, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Now, I want to take a minute and look at those three things. These are, these are accusations that keep coming his way. I want to take a minute and look at, at those three things, because Paul wasn't anti in a legal sense, but he was accurate in a theological sense. I want, you to, I want you to grasp those two things, that Paul wasn't anti these things in, in a legal sense, but he, he was accurate in a theological sense, which is what is causing this conflict between him and these Jewish leaders right here. 
And it makes all of the difference in our understanding who he was and what he preached and why he's in so much hot water. All right, so they said Paul was anti-law. If you have a Bible, you can flip back to Acts chapter 18, verse 13. Acts chapter 18, verse 13. This is not the first time that we see this. So they said that Paul was anti-law. We see him back in Corinth. And the, 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 the people come and they say this, verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Right? This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. The Jews in Corinth made a united attack on him saying that he was teaching people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, that Paul did not teach people to worship God uh, contrary to the law. In fact, in chapter 24, uh, Paul makes it very, very clear that he believes everything in the law. You remember, he even goes through this purification uh, process to, to show that, hey, I'm not anti-law, I'm not anti-Jewish uh, uh, observances and, and worship. I'm, I'm not against those kinds of things. I'm not acting contrary to the law. And yet, listen to what he says in Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what Paul is saying here is they have tons of knowledge about their law. They have tons of zeal about their law, but it's not in accordance with, with true knowledge of, of how we are to obtain any sort of righteousness before God. It's not in the keeping of the law, it's in Jesus. Because none of us can keep the law perfectly. He can, we trust in him, and his righteousness is then credited to us. He goes on, this is Romans 10 verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. Because, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Paul is not anti, in a legal sense, he's not anti-law. He is accurate theologically in what the law demands and what the law is pointing to, which is our righteousness must come through Christ and through Christ alone. That it's not the observance of the law that saves us, but he says right here in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's this gospel view and this gospel message that is causing the Jews so much consternation. And they're like, well, he's anti-law. He's I'm not anti-law. I'm accurate theologically and showing you what your law is meant to point to and how you have it wrong. All right, how about the next one? They, they said Paul was anti-temple. So Paul's anti-law. Paul's anti-temple. Well, was he really? Look back at verse uh, 21. It's Acts 21, 28. Again, not that I'm just showing you this, these things have come uh, over and over again, uh, Acts 21, 28. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law in this place, meaning the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So this charge that they're making against him is one that they've already made against him, that he's, he, he's, uh, he's speaking against the temple, he's defiling the temple, and again, this, this isn't true at all, and we see that in the text that I just have, we keep reading in that text. This isn't true. He hasn't defiled the temple at all. He wasn't opposed to the temple. 
In fact, he's maintained some Jewish practices. Christians aren't anti-temple. Paul's not anti-temple. He is accurate theologically in how he thinks about the temple. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul taught that that Christians are God's temple in the new covenant where his spirit dwells in us. So the temple was great and the temple was there for a purpose and it was the the place where God's glory and his presence was manifested. But in Christ, in the new covenant, God's spirit indwells his his people, his followers, believers. And so Paul's not anti-temple. He is accurate theologically in wanting us to see that any of us who turn to God, we don't have to go to any certain place to interact with God. We have a mediator, Christ Jesus, and his spirit indwelling in us to where, where, where uh, we can know his presence and um, have that in our lives in a real tangible way, not having to go to a physical building for that. Right? Not anti-temple, but accurate theologically in how he would think about it. And then the third charge that they said Paul was anti-Caesar Paul was anti-Caesar you see that in the text that he's spoken against Caesar this is the first time in one of these trials that that this has come up Caesar's this accusation of being anti-Caesar but it's important this is very important this is maybe one of the uh, when it said that that they were making uh, many and serious charges because if he had been anti-Caesar if he had spoken against Caesar, if he had spoken against the temple and, and, and against uh, the law, that would, have been like a, that would have been a Jewish thing where they were like, yeah, you guys need to work that out on yourselves with, with the Romans. But when he, if he's anti-Caesar, now the Romans have to act. If, if he is seditious in any way, now he's got to die. Right? So this is, this is a, all of these things would have been bad in the, far, in the part of, of Paul just disobeying or, or acting contrary to what God's word had said. But right here with Caesar... That's where it elevates, and that's going to be a capital offense. All right, so they said that he is anti-Caesar. And this is, listen, this, this is what, uh, if you remember back in Jesus' ministry, this is what they tried to trap Jesus with all the time, right? Over and over again, they would say, wait, 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 do you need to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the text says they're always trying to trap him. They're always trying to get Jesus to say something against Caesar. Right? Even at Jesus' arrest before Pilate, you remember what the, the, the crowd say? They said, if you release this man... What? You're no friend of Caesar. Right? So, so this was a very uh, intense, serious accusation and something that we see even in Jesus' life of them trying to trap him with. Well, again, this, this, this accusation, not in these trials, but earlier in his ministry, back in Acts chapter 17, we see uh, when Paul was in Thessalonica, listen to this, Acts 17, verse 7. Jason received them, and they were all... Act, uh, Sorry, uh, verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Paul, they're saying, is acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king. Well, is that true? Is that not true? Listen, Paul in his ministry in no way commended any sort of revolt or usurping of Caesar. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, he, he teaches and he writes about proper submission to authorities and that they have their positions by God and we are to respect and submit to their right rule and authority given by God. And yet, every time 
that Paul calls Jesus the Christ, he is saying there's another king. Every time Paul calls Jesus Lord, he is saying there is another king. So speak anti-Caesar? No, 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 not anti-Caesar. Accurate theologically that Caesar is a earthly king, but there is a king of kings who is even higher than him and higher than any other rule and authority, and his name is Jesus. I'm not breaking any law and saying that, I'm, but, but I'm just trying to point out that, that any of these kings have their authority derivative from the, 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 the king of kings and the creator of this universe. Every time he speaks of Christ, he is declaring this kingship. Jesus is the Messiah. He is this promised son of David, this truer and greater king, this forever king whose throne will be eternal. That's what Christ is declaring. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus about this king's reign above far else. He says uh, that, uh, uh, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, far above all authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put all things under his feet. So Paul has an accurate theological view of Christ the king over and above all earthly kings. I just want you to see here that Paul's conduct is, is above reproach, not He's not anti uh, in a legal sense to these things, but he's accurate in a theological sense. And so Paul says in verse 11, he says, if I've done anything deserving of death, I'll face those consequences. But if I've done anything deserving of death, he'd he'd accept those consequences, verse 11. But it's just not true. He he preaches the true gospel, and he represents God's true rule and reign and salvation. He conducts himself above board in in, in those processes. And Paul knows he can rest easy. He can sleep well. He can have a clear conscience because he's maintained godly conduct in his speech. He's maintained godly conduct in his actions. He's in no way speaking ill of the temple or of the law or of Caesar, even though he is pointing to to, to truer and higher and better things and his proclamation of the gospel. Church, if, if we must suffer if we must be ridiculed, if we must be accused, if we must be slandered, may it be while maintaining godly conduct. May it be where we can, like Paul, say, listen, if if I've done anything wrong, I'll I'll accept those consequences. But all we're doing is we're trying to highlight Jesus and proclaim God's word and what what, what the the true king of kings has delivered to us and given to us. That's what we're trying to do here not trying to be seditious, we're not trying to start a revolt, we're not trying to, not speaking again, we're not, we're not trying to, 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 to tear down the temple, we're just, we're showing this is, this is truer and better, pointing people to the true life that they can have in Christ, maintaining godly conduct in the way that we speak, in the way that we act. So Paul, here we see this pressure in his life, this trial, this two-year imprisonment, once again, having to defend himself, how does he do it? I think he's resting in God's care. Luke is bringing that out and showing how God delivered him through Festus. We, we see him maintaining godly conduct that he feels he can, he's acted in such a way that, that he would take the consequences, but he knows there's not coming because he's following the Lord and living faithfully. And then finally, he focuses on God's commission. Focus on God's commission. 
really just a verse and a half here that I want to direct your attention to, the second half of verse 11, right after he says, I deserve to, if I deserve to die, I, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them, I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. So in these final two verses here, we see him appeal to Caesar. The, the Caesar at the time was actually Nero, who is infamous in Christian history for his just uh, uh, horrific, vicious persecution of Christians. That hadn't happened at this point. That's about four years after this, uh, where, where Nero will go on the kind of the, the most intense part of his rampage against Christians. Uh, he's actually kind of mild at this point with his interactions with, with, uh, with Christians, kind of tame and moderate. Um, that's coming, but this is Nero is the Caesar at this time. And so, uh, so uh, uh, Festus tries to get Paul to, to go back to Jerusalem again as a favor to the Jews, not knowing, again, if he would have done that and if he would, would have successfully gotten Paul to go back to Jerusalem, that's Paul's death sentence. Those Jews are still going to be waiting in ambush to kill him. And so Paul, knowing that he's done nothing against the Jewish law, there's no reason for him to go back and be tried in Jerusalem before the Jews. There's nothing there. He's done nothing wrong against them. So he says, if there are these many and serious charges, I haven't acted against the temple, haven't acted against the law. You guys are saying I've acted against Caesar. Maybe I should go and defend myself before Caesar then. That's the big charge. That's the, 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 the really serious one. So he knows having his Jewish rights, he appeals to Caesar. Fester gets... Uh, Fester... Festus gets together and he confers with his, uh, with, his, uh, with his council. Again, probably not, man, what are our options here? What can we do? Can we keep him? Can we send him to Jerusalem? And just knowing, realizing at the end of the day, they've got to let him do it. They've got to ship him off. They've got to send him. As much as he wants to do a favor for the Jews, Paul is a Roman citizen and he has appealed to Caesar. To Caesar he shall go. And with that phrase, the interesting thing in our text is we're going through the book of the phrase, with that phrase, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go, the Jewish threat disappears. These Jews who have been nipping at the heels of Paul for chapters, these Jews who, who, who these Jewish leaders who are trying to ambush him and kill him, now Paul's going to have more trouble and more different uh, things that come his way in the chapters to follow, but this specific threat from these leaders vanishes. And that brief sentence at the end of our text is very understated. You maybe get the feel of that. That's a huge moment. That's a huge thing. To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. It's a huge moment communicated by that brief sentence. So I want you to keep in mind two verses that I think help to give a, a kind of a full understanding of this moment right here. I want to give you two verses. One verse that happens before this passage and one verse that happens after this passage. All right, so listen to this. First is Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Acts 23, 11. It's huge for understanding this moment. The following night, it says, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. That's the commission. That's what Paul had been commissioned by Jesus to do. Paul knows that. Paul knows that's the mission he's on. That's, he knows that's where he's to head. He is to go to Rome. And the same way he's testified about Jesus and Jerusalem, he's got to go and make that same, uh, have that same witness and give that same testimony in Rome. So he knows that's the commission. He knows that going in, that, that he is ultimately to get to Rome. And so when Paul appeals to Caesar, it's not just a self-preservation tactic. It's Paul the missionary. It's Paul knowing where Jesus wants him to get. 
and he's in the midst of these court battles, and he's sure he's got this Roman citizen. He knows that if he appeals to, to Caesar, he's got to go to Rome, and that's, a, that's not just coincidence. That's where Jesus has told him he's going to go. That's the mission he's on, and that's why he appeals to Caesar, and he wants to get to Rome. He, he's kept his eyes on the mission of Christ in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his imprisonment, in the midst of this ill treatment. He knows why he's been called, and he knows what he's supposed to do, and he keeps his eyes on it. So that's the first verse. That's what he appealed to. A second verse that helps give flavors after this one. Listen to this. Acts 26, 32. We're going to cover this in sermons to come, but Paul was going to give that fifth defense before King Agrippa. And Agrippa looks into it and then says to Festus in Acts chapter 26, verse 32, basically says, Paul's done nothing wrong. He can go. But Acts 26, 32 says this. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That interesting, those verses bracketing what we're seeing in our text right here, Jesus says to Paul, you will go to Rome and be my witness. Paul, in front of Festus, appealing to Caesar to get him to go to Rome, and then later Agrippa saying to Festus, if he had not appealed to Caesar, we could let him go. He's done nothing wrong. I think what Luke is doing is he's highlighting in this narrative from the commission of Christ in Acts 23 to the appeal to Caesar in Acts 25 to the could have been released of Acts 26. The mission of God is paramount. The mission of God is driving these actions. It's driving these directives. It's driving Paul getting from where he is to where he needs to be. The mission of God is always there in front of him. Part of the reason Paul is able to keep going like he is, one of the ways he's able to maintain and, and, and persevere and endure through this season of his life, I think is because he has God's mission in mind. Also, when Jesus called him even earlier in the book of Acts, he says, I'm going I'm, I'm to show you what you must suffer for me. Paul knows pain is coming, but getting that gospel out and being that witness is paramount in his mind, and he stays focused on it. He knows that it's going to come with pain and hatred and scorn and opposition and setbacks. But he doesn't allow himself to be distracted and thrown off course. He doesn't allow himself to be discouraged or he would slacken from the commission that Christ has given, but he keeps his eyes on it. And I just want to say as we kind of end with, it, with, with, with that uh, reminder and, and with, with that encouragement, uh, church, how would you be helped by a similar focus? in a similar posture. When the pressure is on in your life, what does Christ's commission for you to make disciples look like? What is Christ's commission to help others know what it means to be, be reconciled to God, that you've been reconciled to him, you were his enemy, and now you're his friends, and you've been given the ministry of reconciliation? What does it look like in the midst of all of, your, uh, all of the, the pressure and all the pushback that you get to, to have that? I am to be a reconciler of men and women to God. I'm to be a discipler. I'm to take the things that I've learned and pass that on to others that they might also be qualified to teach others. I might take, uh, the, I must contend for the faith that's been handed down to me. I, I must be a witness of the death and resurrection, the things that I know to be true, that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. I am to be a witness of that to other people. Friends, this is the commission. This is why we're here. This is the work that he has for us. And so in the midst of our, it's easy to do that in the happy times and the good times, and the, but, but in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the pressure, in the midst of the pain, what does it look like to keep our eyes on 
and stay focused on the mission, the commission that he's given to us. What does it look like to glorify him and to point people to him and to make him appear as he is, which is all satisfying and all glorious and beautiful in our eyes? This is what we are to do. This is how we are to carry ourselves. This is how we are to act. Represent him well. Make his name known, even in those difficult times, even when the heat is turned up, even when the pressure is on. What does it look like for me to be a witness for him in these situations? What does it look like for me to stay focused on the mission that he's given to his followers? So church, through the pressures of life, keep your eyes on the purposes of God. I, I think those three words right there, if you could just take something away and, and, and something, maybe something small and memorable is, is those three words of care, conduct, and commission. Care, conduct, and commission. The next time you're in a conversation that, that, is, that is heated or a, a time where you're being, uh, getting that, that persecution for your faith or, or, or when things are difficult and life is just hard, just say those words, care, conduct, commission. God cares for me. He knows right where I am and he can handle this. Conduct, what, what would it look like for me to, 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 to live as he would have me live? Even, even if I screw that up, what does it look like for me to repent well of the way I didn't live like he called me to live? Care, conduct, commission, how can I be a representative and, and, a, and, a, and a, a mouthpiece for the gospel in the midst of this situation? Care, conduct, commission. Care, conduct, commission.